How do you reconcile that unique American sense of independence with the need for more urban fabric? We need sure. to build more urban fabric, but we all want to like put our stamp on something. How, how do you how do you deal with that? I, I think you have to redefine what the the stamp is. I, I think at the end of the day, um, uh, the unique sort of American independence. Uh, I mean, if I'm going to be like totally blunt, I don't think that that's any different than anywhere else in the world. Like people that live in Europe or Asia or South America, like they they want independence. And I would actually argue that, you know, an eight year old that lives in Copenhagen has far more independence than an eight year old that lives in, um, you know, Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, the, the reality is, is that our mobility systems, our public realm, you know, literally prohibits anybody that's outside of the ages of like 16 to, to 75 from doing anything. That's why we have like such a huge nursing home culture and, uh, you know, a dependence on terrible TV and video games to, to keep people, uh, you know, occupied. Um, and, and honestly, like, that's why I get so excited about like micro mobility and lime scooters. Like when I see two kids, like climbing on a lime scooter together to like go to their friend's house, like not that, that makes me so happy because that is independence. That is sort of that's like right. the true idea of like being, you know, going wherever you want. And so I think it's about redefining what you know, what the city is and what and, and what people can put their stamp on. Welcome, fellow placemakers, to another enriching episode of the Placemaking Podcast, where we explore the art and science of crafting vibrant communities. I'm your host, Matt Lose, and today we're diving into the dynamic realm of large-scale planning and infill real estate development. While our esteemed guest, Joshua Brooks from Sasaki, will be joining us shortly to share his invaluable insights, let's take a moment to shine a spotlight on a groundbreaking project that's been reshaping the urban landscape, the Denargo Market Project in Denver, Colorado. Denargo Market stands as a testament to the transformative power of thoughtful planning and innovative design. Nestled in the heart of Denver, this initiative has breathed new life into once neglected industrial area, reimagining it as a thriving urban district that harmoniously blends culture, commerce, and community. Through strategic interventions and community collaboration, the Denargo Market Project exemplifies the potential of repurposing underutilized spaces to create vibrant, more sustainable neighborhoods that enrich the lives of residents and visitors alike. As we delve into our discussion on large-scale planning and infill real estate development, we'll draw inspiration from the successes of projects like the Nargo Market, exploring the principles and practices that drive the creation of resilient, inclusive urban environments. So, dear listeners, get ready to embark on a journey of discovery and inspiration. Stay tuned as we uncover the secrets behind crafting spaces that not only reflect the spirit of their communities, but also pave the way for a brighter, more connected future. Welcome to the Placemaking Podcast. Let's dive in. Hey, welcome to the show, Josh. 
Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, glad to have you on the show. Uh, I think this is going to be a really fun one uh, because a lot of our disciplines kind of interact in, in, in certain ways. And I'm excited to kind of see how uh, how to perceive our, our different interactions and in maybe a different light. So I'm kind of looking forward to this one. I want to start off with kind of a deep dive into your journey, maybe starting off uh, with your initial interest in um, planning and, and just a built environment and we can work from there. Yeah, no, that sounds good. Um, so I, I grew up in Louisiana uh, in a very typical sort of suburban fabric. Uh, I was a, a Lego kid, you know, like many designers, engineers, and uh, I was actually in Lego magazine when I was a kid, which is like my my biggest claim to fame. That's awesome. Um, we get a and will be will likely be for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, but but I you know I was very interested in building and and like many of those people I you know I I thought I wanted to be an architect uh, growing up. Uh, in high school, I, you know, was going to go into architecture school and I, I wasn't like a particularly ambitious, uh, you know, student in high school. I like <laughs> liked music and, and you know, random things like that and wasn't, wasn't like a, a straight A student by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but when I got to college, I went to LSU in my, my hometown of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, uh, and I, I quickly transferred to landscape architecture after having spent uh, the summer before college uh, traveling to uh, many, many national parks around the country, uh, I found myself incredibly uh, drawn to the notion of building in pristine places. And uh, when I first got into uh, landscape architecture, which is my undergraduate degree, I had every intention of, of like working for the National Park Service and being one of those people that like laid out roads running through the mountains and things like that. And um, about it, about my, my second or third year of undergrad, uh, one of my uh, professors who, who became a dear friend and mentor, um, actually until he passed just a few weeks ago, uh, gave me a book called Yard Street Park, um, which is a, a terrible book from the 1980s. But it was a really interesting sort of synopsis of the built environment, uh, sort of multiplying in scales from the, the idea of somebody's, you know, yard to the neighborhood and streets that they live in to the, the parks that they use and up into the city scale. And it kind of got me fascinated in just bigger thinking and and particularly urban thinking. Uh, and, and from undergrad, I moved to Australia uh, and worked for a, a, a company, a planning and design firm that did a lot of like infrastructure planning, regional growth analyses, things like that, and just became more and more interested in the city. I lived in, in Sydney, which is like one of the most amazing global cities in the world. And didn't have any friends, so I would just go walking for you know hours on end and explore neighborhoods, um, and and that really got me uh, sort of hooked on on urbanism and 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 really uh, focused more on on the urban side of things, uh, which has been my my focus uh, for for the whole the whole career uh, from. Uh, undergrad, I, I started working and, and uh, worked uh, in Colorado, but did a, a number of projects around the country and around the world and ultimately went back to grad school at MIT, 
where I studied urban planning and urban design, um, you know, with a focus on real estate economics, uh, you know, architecture, infrastructure, technology, all the things that a funky place like MIT has to offer. And, and since then, I've been uh, very laser focused on on sort of uh, urban design and, and master planning for both private and public and institutional clients uh, with a bent towards understanding how to ultimately deliver, you know, what I call human habitat. Um, and that that's really my my sort of sticking point. Um, I now work for Sasaki, where I'm a, a principal urban designer and, and landscape architect. Um, I manage our, our Denver office, but I work, fortunately, all over the country and, and some internationally uh, with a great team of architects and planners and, and designers and landscape architects um, to solve, you know, complex issues. And so uh, maybe that was a little long winded, but I. I you know, I really do believe like my my background and the sort of arc from being a, you know, a person that wanted to design roads going through national parks to somebody who's like utterly obsessed with cities um, is interesting. Uh, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, cities are uh, are as natural as a, an anthill or a beehive. I mean, it's just a place where where a, a type of species lives. And so, um, yeah, anyway. That's it. That is unique. Uh, that whole background. I mean, there's so many different. You started in Baton Rouge, and and uh, worked your way around the world, basically identifying different habitats that you would you found yourself in uh, and identifying with, and found your way to Sasaki, where you're being able to somewhat create those habitats that were most conducive to uh, the people that inhabit them. And um, just there's there's so many places there that you you were, it sounded like you were in for a, more than a time, you know. Yep. Were, were there any places that just stuck out to you, like that, that really inspired you maybe is, is a better way to put that, that struck out as, as a place that you wanted to implement certain aspects from more so than others? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I, uh, fortunately, I've been able to live around the world, around the country and, and travel, you know, quite extensively. Um, you know, I've lived in Australia, I've lived in Boston, I've lived in Denver, I've lived in Baton Rouge. Uh, what <laughs> that question reminds me of actually a kind of a funny story. I, I when I was in grad school, I applied for a, a fellowship to basically be paid to travel around northern Europe and look at, you know, human habitat. Uh, that was my like sort of sales pitch. And at the time I was living in, in Boston with my wife in the South End, which is a, a phenomenal neighborhood. And, you know, I was gone for three and a half weeks, you know, all, all paid for doing, you know, quote unquote academic research, but really just like walking around the city, sketching and, and writing and documenting and photographing. And I, um, went to some remarkable places and I, I came home and my wife was asking me, you know, where, where's the best human habitat? And I said, actually the South end, um, <laughs> one of, one of the most inspirational places I have ever been. And fortunately I lived there for, for almost five years is the South end in Boston, which is just this remarkable neighborhood of, of human scale buildings, wonderful streets, a wonderful mix of, of uses, 
you know, high rises and low slung brick buildings, new buildings, old buildings, and a network of kind of public realm and pocket park that, you know, people take, take ownership over. And, uh, I, to this day, I am inspired by that neighborhood in, in, in every sense of the word. And I, I really do. I love going back there. I love going to visit there um, when I'm back in Boston uh, uh, every now and then. And uh, that's, that's really, uh, I think where a lot of it, a lot of it starts for me, but I, I would say that across the world, there are all sorts of remarkable places. And I, I find inspiration in cities all over the place and there's no one size fits all approach to urbanism and, and design. And so, um, you know, each place has its own little, uh, its own little, little heartbeat. You know, in traveling around and seeing different parts of the world, we, we collect little bits and little experiences and, and we, we're in that profession where we can turn around and start bringing that to places that may not have that kind of livability. What do you think are those aspects you mentioned scale and you mentioned you know just kind of the heartbeat the human heartbeat of a place but from a tactile point of view what are the things that you think create valuable places that's a that's a really hard question um I, you know i would i would start by you know in the broadest sense uh the notion of a, a complete community um i think from a, a policy and land use perspective um, starting with this idea that, you know, somebody can get anything they need or do anything they want within their own neighborhood or collection of neighborhoods that make up a larger sort of piece of the city, um, I think is, is where we have to start. And, and, you know, there's all these buzzwords out, like 15 minute city, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that's not a new concept at all. Uh, I think when you look back and at historically what cities have been, that was what they were. And, uh, you know, the planning profession essentially gutted, uh, the, the, the city as we know it, um, you know, in the forties, fifties, sixties and seventies. And, you know, we're still climbing out of that, that huge hole that, um, you know, suburban suburbanization and white flight and, and some just really egregious uh, policy and, and, and sort of incentive programs ultimately resulted in. Um, but I think starting with that notion is, is really important. Um, I think from a tactile standpoint, you know, what that means is that we start with a person and the scale of a person, as opposed to starting with the scale of a car, which is why, you know, how so many places are designed. Um, you know, understanding everything from the sort of repetition of, of, you know, the, the cadence of doors as you walk down a street and that, that the impact that has on your perception of safety and comfort, knowing that there's always somebody there, um, you know, the interaction between the ground floor of a building and the sidewalk, um, you know, means everything. It means the ability for somebody to take ownership of the public realm, um, you know, just to use the South End as an example, it has a, a phenomenal stoop culture. Um, people sit, you know, on the front steps and, and people walk by, they say, hi, you, you meet your neighbor. Um, that is, you know, so fundamental to good, you know, kind of city building. Um, I think an integrated public realm is something that we uh, specifically in, in the United States have a horrible, horrible um, sort of starting point from we we think of uh, you know parks as parks and 
streets as streets and, um, you know, et cetera. But all of it is part of the public realm. Like the public realm is, is when you step out of your private residence and into the world, you're in the public realm. And so understanding that as an integrated network um, and ensuring that there's not barriers to entry, barriers to movement, uh, I think is, is fundamental. Um, yeah. And, and, and to me, that comes to, to sort of the dis, the un, unnecessary disciplinary boundaries that we tend to draw in this world between, you know, what a planner does, what an architect does, what a engineer does, what a landscape architect does. Um, I, I, you know, I get in trouble sometimes cause I, I love drawing outside the lines. Um, but I think that's what our world requires is, is that we all draw outside the lines. And when we, when we start to overlap with each other, that's where the sort of beauty in, in design and placemaking and engineering can start to happen. Uh, I think I answered your question, but I definitely went off on a tangent. So I apologize. Well, I, I, <laughs> no, I, I love, I love the, the stoop culture. I think that's yeah. essential to understanding the, you know, the, that relationship between private space and public space and then that that thin area which should be the semi-private or you know like yeah. the porch. You're, un, you're under a protected space you're on your you're at your house you're on your property but you can see your neighbors and I, when you start talking about you know home office and then the third place you know you yeah. start to understand that that relationship is we're passing through other people's semi-private spaces all the time because it's their business it's their patio it's it's their park where they go and you know feed the pigeons or whatever mm -hmm. and and a lot of your work uh, and and your office's work has been about redefining that third place and stitching together the first and the, the first and the uh, you know first and second home and office sure. and those spaces in between what are some of the challenges that you run into from um a public perception standpoint about why it's important to invest in public spaces. Sure. Um, it, you know, I, this, I feel like the, I'm going to start with a tangent here and then, and then we'll get back to the question, but you know, in our society, and I, I'm talking, you know, really from a North American lens, um, we have this like fundamental perception that, you know, the suburbanization, private car ownership, everybody having their single family home, um, like that represents like the ultimate, you know, market success and, and like freedom. When in reality, like that life and that, that existence and the infrastructure that exists there is the single most subsidized uh, sort of thing that we have in this country from, you know, federal laws that, that subsidize the cost of gasoline to incentive programs that build out highways to, uh, you know, local regulation that prohibits certain forms of, of habitation. And, and um, you know, the, the fact that somebody can turn out of their driveway and onto a public street and not have to, you know, give somebody a dollar uh, for driving on that public street, but a person you know, down the block or on the other side of the city to get on a bus has to give somebody a dollar. I, I, you know, what I, what I try and, and do is, is really convince clients and cities and communities uh, of the facts of the matter in that we, if we can refocus on quality of life, quality of place, um, 
then we can start to move away from what is a a very challenging kind of economy to to maintain um you know we 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 have these huge tracks of single use you know single use land uses we have huge aging infrastructural systems all of that cost money uh to to maintain and so if we can start to to talk about what you and i and probably many of the listeners here would consider good urban design or good places good urbanism if we can talk about it in the lens of it's actually a, a sound economic play uh you start to have a a, a a more of a backbone to to sort of fight against and that's why you know any student that ever asked me for advice i always talk i always say you know you got to learn economics you got to understand the economy of 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 development and city building and and uh, you know public finance because it's critical to the conversation um, uh, related to to placemaking. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. Fellow fellow engineer uh, with strong towns, Charles Marone, also from the place you're at currently there, in Minneapolis, St. Paul. You know, if you haven't if if anybody hasn't read that book yet, The Strong Towns, yeah, I'm very familiar with. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely worth uh, reading, and I, I think he definitely put this discussion on the map. Whereas before it was hush hush, or maybe not in necessarily the terms that people, most regular people could could grasp, uh, or the layperson could grasp. That's not intimately involved in in the built environment. Um, that that whole discussion has really opened up the eyes. Uh, it seems like in local government to a degree that it, it hadn't previously. So hopefully that helps with the economic discussion that you're referencing, Josh. Yeah. I, I know, I know it, it's definitely their, their push has been, been felt. Um, definitely. So I wanted to, transition and i think we're going to probably come back to it here a little bit here in the future but i want to talk about um the project that i i saw you reference uh on, on linkedin initially and, and kind of brought you to my attention but uh was the denargo denargo market is that yeah was, yeah denargo uh, market yeah there in denver and uh yeah. that that kind of opened my eyes to what you're you're doing personally um but could you just describe that project and then we'll we'll probably talk about a couple other projects on the on the way but was yeah. curious to just tell us a little bit the metrics the high level metrics and we'll we'll dive in a little bit more after that sure yeah so i mean denarga market's a, a a truly amazing project um you know our client is a joint venture between gallup and company out of Chicago, a major real estate investor and uh, formative company uh, in Denver, which is a local real estate investment uh, and, and development group, uh, both, uh, you know, very well known for executing some some truly remarkable projects around the country and, and both locally. Um, and, and we were brought in uh, during the master planning process originally to, to support and then uh, sort of transitioned and into the prime kind of role. And it is a uh, 12 acre kind of 
donut hole um, in in the city of Denver. Uh, it, it dates back, you know, to the to the city's beginning. Uh, its namesake was a, a sort of wholesale distribution market where farmers and you know ranchers would bring their their stuff in uh, from around you know around in the rural areas and for distribution in in the metro. Uh, and then that was demolished, uh, like many cool things in in the country, and turned into a uh, urban municipal landfill uh, that was filled with you know nothing nothing too dirty, but lots of construction debris and organic matter and all sorts of random, random trash. Um, and about a little, little less than 30 years ago, uh, that sort of closed down and started to get redeveloped. And there was some really, you know, kind of at the time, uh, sort of first generation urban infill apartment buildings that kind of got built around it. And then, um, you know, the, the market kind of slowed down in, in, you know, 2006, seven, eight, and uh, the project just sort of stalled out entirely. And, and in its place left literally like an 11 acre, just dirt patch that has been sitting there since, since then, uh, essentially a, a cap on top of this urban landfill right adjacent to the, the South Platte river. And uh, you know, just a, just a stone's throw about a half a mile from, uh, Union Station, the center of, of downtown Denver. And so it's a, a remarkable opportunity to sort of think about urban infill on a, a really large scale. And and to date, uh, Denargo Market is sort of the largest urban infill project happening in Denver um, that's uh, under construction, broke ground, you know, just a, just a few weeks ago. And so there's some other ambitious projects happening, but Denargo Market's sort of out, out in front leading the way. Um, overall, it's about, you know, somewhere between four and six million square feet when it's, when it's all built out. Uh, it'll be a combination of hotel, office, residential, um, ground floor retail. Uh, but what gets me really, really excited um, and this is somewhat of a nature of, of the project constraints, but also somewhat of, I think, our unwillingness to like give in is uh, we really convinced the city and, and our clients that the public realm literally had to be first. And so instead of building, you know, a building and, you know, sidewalk around it and then building another building and sidewalk around it, we said, no, no, no we need to build fabric. We need to build the city fabric. Um, and so we, the first phase that just broke ground is, is literally all the infrastructure, all the public realms, all the parks, all the plazas, all the placemaking elements that, you know, will ultimately really define this um, because, you know, the, the, the average person that experiences this district will remember, you know, the public realm, not, you know, the inside of an apartment building. Uh, and so that all is is starting to to break ground, and you know it's a a really phenomenal kind of network of of open spaces and streets and plazas that'll ultimately tie the the whole district together. Um, overall, there's there's nine separate parcels that could be you know anywhere from nine to you know eleven or twelve buildings, should, however you know however they're subdivided. Um, and so yeah, that's that's the kind of basics of it, and super exciting to. Uh, finally break ground after nearly half a decade of <laughs> planning and design. How do you reconcile that unique American sense of independence with the need for more urban fabric? 
we need sure. to build more urban fabric, but we all want to like put our stamp on something. How, how do you, how do you deal with that? I, I think you have to redefine what the, the stamp is. I, I think at the end of the day, um, uh, the unique sort of American independence, uh, I mean, if I'm going to be like totally blunt, I don't think that that's any different than anywhere else in the world. Like people that live in Europe or Asia or South America, like they they want independence. And I would actually argue that, you know, an eight year old that lives in Copenhagen has far more independence than an eight year old that lives in, um, you know, Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, the, the reality is, is that our mobility systems, our public realm, you know, literally prohibits anybody that's outside of the ages of like 16 to, to 75 from doing anything. That's why we have like such a huge nursing home culture and, uh, you know, a dependence on terrible TV and video games to, to keep people, uh, you know, occupied. Um, and, and honestly, like, that's why I get so excited about like micro mobility and lime scooters. Like when I see two kids, like climbing on a lime scooter together to like go to their friend's house, like not that, that makes me so happy because that is independence. That is sort of like the true idea of like being, you know, going wherever you want. And so I think it's about redefining what you know, what the city is and what, and, and what people can put their stamp on because, and to bring it back to Denargo market, like, you know, one of the, one of the things that we struggled with is, you know, Denver, like many places has, has a terrible public realm in its downtown and the surrounding areas, harsh, you know, lack of street trees, lack of like interstitial spaces, lack of things to do. And there's always there's such a tendency to follow, you know, the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure standards to build these sidewalks. And I like we just pushed and pushed and pushed back as hard as we could to say, like, no, 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 like we're going to build a big mixed use development. We're going to put a freaking kids playground there. We're going to build like a park, like things that people are like, why the hell would you build a playground in this mixed use district in the middle of the city is like. Because I want families to say, oh, my God, I have another option. I can buy a condo in this, you know, this building and I can live next to the South Platte River and commute to, to downtown by walking a few blocks and not spending, you know, 45 minutes in traffic. And I can still have a place for my kid to go play. Um, you know, and I like to be honest, I'm a person that believes in practicing what we preach. Like I live right in the heart of the city. My kids experience is they like I have four year old twins. I throw them on the back of my like e-cargo bike. I bike them to their daycare that's between my my really old narrow lot home in a historic neighborhood next to downtown. I drop them off. I bike to my office. Um, and like that's I, be, I believe in that lifestyle. And I actually believe that that's more independent than being, you know, spending three hours in a car every day. Uh, yeah. So. I think it's yeah. about redefining the stamp, I guess. No, that's that's great. I I uh <laughs> I smile every time anybody says anything about the Department of Transportation or uh engineering <laughs> departments, public works. Yeah. Um <laughs> it's just uh, you know, as a as a engineer myself, you know, I understand 
you know, the policy that was put in place and how how it was set there and the, the history behind some of this. But at the same time, you understand what pains me is that I understand that almost all 100% of the time, the biggest barrier to the, some of the developments that we would like to see is the standards and traditions that were formulated back in the 40s, like you said, 40s, 50s, uh, and the understanding of um, what, you know, and the updated machinery that was used back then that is dictated easement sizes and, yeah. uh, you know, where utilities are placed and what what's a, what's a standard road size and radii for fire trucks and all this stuff. And, uh, and, and we're dealing it. I mean, we're dealing with it all the time still here yeah. um, where I'm at. So how do you, and this might go into a future question, but how do you have that conversation? You said you push back on the, the department, but obviously you can, you can more so at that scale, right. Yeah. And you can dictate that to a larger degree, but how, how do you look, at the grass grassroots level, how do you have those conversations? How do you push back on um, those regulations? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question, and I think um, I would answer it in a couple of different ways. Uh, you know, one is I believe that you have to have like you can't just push back on something; you have to have a solution. And you also have to have the technical wherewithal to have that conversation. And so, you know, when the city engineer starts throwing around, you know, Ashto Green Book sort of standards and, you know, starts to use language that he thinks is or she thinks is going to be over your head. And then you just slap them right back at it and say, actually, X, Y and Z. Um, you know, I, I think that that helps a lot. And, you know, arguing uh, case studies from other places, et cetera, et cetera. I think ge generally building consensus uh, amongst your allies. So, you know, for every, uh, uh, for every villain in, in those conversations, there's generally allies in other departments that can pull some weight. And so, you know, bringing them on board. Um, I also think uh, it is, finding the, you know, working with the right types of clients. Uh, I, you know, I, I feel like I say this from a place of privilege, um, you know, working at a company like Sasaki, but we work with some remarkable clients that are willing to, um, you know, to willing to buck the system, to take on liability should the city say, well, you have to take on liability. Um, and I, I really try and have those conversations early on to say, okay, if we're going to do this and this is our outcome that we want, just so you know, these, you know, 80% of what we're talking about is either non-compliant or, you know, we're going to have to do a variance or something like that. And getting them to buy into that and, and take responsibility for that is, it's hard, but I think that's, that's really important. Um, you know, the last thing I would say is, I think as a as an industry, uh, planning, design, engineering, whatever, we have to we have to push back on that that policy, um, and and we have to engage in larger conversations uh, that, you know, 
might make us some enemies in the short run. Um, you know, I, I feel like I have this conversation with my partners or industry professionals all the time, like, oh, how vocal can we be? We don't want to like, you know, make uh, the this city person angry at us when the next RFP comes out or whatever. And I like, I get that, but uh, at the same time, I, I, I don't know. I feel like recently I've, I've, I've basically just said, I don't care anymore. Like I want to do what's right. And like, yeah, we're going to piss some people off along the way, but in, until we engage in that larger dialogue um, and until we become comfortable talking to policymakers and our elected officials in ways that we are convincing, none of that's going to change. I think I, I find myself, uh, you know, talking to city council or people or, or very high ranking members of public works or parks or whatever to say, Hey guys, just FYI, your, you know, your staff are really making it harder for us to deliver what we all sat around a table two years ago and said we wanted to. Um, and, and you can't be afraid to, to sort of speak your mind. Yeah. yeah I think that answers your question. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's, it's a lot easier to speak from a place of principle and communicate why these things are important for these benefits. And I, I think back to the, the changes that occurred post-World War II and the idea of the automobile being more accessible and land being more accessible and the highways, the means to get there. When we turn around, it's, it's almost like we're telling people, this is obvious to us. This is obvious to everyone in our profession. Why is it so hard to convey these obvious things to you and and have to go through the variances and the changes and all the other updates? And um, how do you maintain that momentum for you personally? Do you, yeah. from a place of principle, you know, do you have to kind of go back to that well of being pissed when you see something very, very bad <laughs> and yeah. and go, no, we can do it better? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I work in, I, I don't work in only places that are like, quote unquote, progressive. You know, I work all across the Southeast, um, you know, in, in the middle America, you know, everywhere from Little Rock, Arkansas to Davenport, Iowa and Evansville, Indiana, like all places where I have active projects going on right now. And, you know, I, I think a lot of what you're describing, I feel like is just, we do a, we, when I say we, I mean the planning and design industry, we do a bad, overall, a very bad job of storytelling and, uh, you know, talking to people about what matters. I, I also believe that a lot of people, like, I don't, I don't think our, our society is sort of split between you know, 90% of the world that's not a designer or an engineer or an architect or a planner, and they all want, you know, McMansions and 17 cars. And then like 10% of us that are like, oh, we got to do this. Like, I don't think there's like inherently a, a, a sort of polarization of, of ideals. Uh, but unfortunately, we just, we don't, we don't have a lot of examples to point to. Like the, the average person hasn't been to 
you know, Hafen City in, in Hamburg, Germany or Copenhagen and, and where I can say, oh, my God, like this place is amazing. They have, you know, narrow lot single family homes where you have your yard, you have your car, but you can walk out the street and go to a coffee shop like most people haven't experienced that. And so I, I think where what I where I get my energy from is the conversations with the communities about like what their ideals are and what their hopes and aspirations are, because my experience has, has taught me, you know, nine times out of 10, everybody kind of wants the same thing. Like there's very, there's very, there's very few times where, you know, after a healthy dialogue, somebody's like, you know, I don't want progress in my city. Like they, like, that just I don't I don't run up against that a lot. And, and again, maybe this is from a place of privilege, but I also think it's from a place of like collaboration and, and like mutual understanding and trying, you know, trying to sort of work through some of those those hiccups along the way to get to a place where we all, you know, we all agree. And then I, I would go back to something I said earlier, which is, you know, a lot of people understand the kind of basic economic conversations and and when we can have a conversation about ideals through the lens of um you know this is actually just more financially feasible um then it 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 helps with that you know with that piece but you know what keeps me going at night is is like the conversations with people you know kids and community members and and just you know, people that are passionate about the places that they live and want to see, you know, progress and, and exciting things happen. And then talking to them about how, you know, how we can help make that happen. Um, a lot of the projects that you guys have worked on um, have seemed like they have pretty good budgets. Um, what's the, the threshold that you cross whenever you say, hey, we want to do a quality place, but we're only going to be able to do this much how do you approach either the client or how do you approach some of the other stakeholders to say, here's what we think is feasible and reasonable um, within the budget? Yeah, uh, that is a, it's a hard conversation and and certainly, um, you know, one that I think I, I hear sometimes from you know colleagues or friends that maybe, you know, work at a more local scale but, you know, I would argue I, we do big and small projects and I, I think you can you can achieve quality. Uh, you know, you don't have to have unlimited money to do great things. Uh, and, I, you know, I think a lot of, I, you know, we work on a lot of kind of like planning scale work, like working on a couple of downtown plans, district scale plans where we're you know, helping conceive ideas, but then also helping clients unpack like what it means to implement those, the available funding sources, how, you know, how much money does that, does that take and starting to right size budgets. Um, you know, I, I, I really think that the, the conversation really needs to be around how to reprioritize where you spend money, not how much money you spend because we spend a ton of money uh you know as a society on all sorts of things you know buildings and parks and roads and streets etc all the all the the kind of canvas that we're talking about 
we just spend it in the wrong place. Um, and so really understanding how to talk intelligently about, you know, budgets and, and reprioritizing where money is spent, um, you know, I think is, is important. I, I feel like a lot of conversations that I have with my clients are, you know, there's a, there's a tendency to want to spread the money out. Um, and I, I find myself actually having lots of conversations around how do you how do you actually consolidate where you're spending money so that you're getting more value for every dollar that you spend and ultimately making an impact that could perhaps make society sort of say we want more of that and then be willing to, you know, re-up a tax or, you know, sign up for some other thing or go find a grant or, you know, some rich person wants to donate uh, uh, money to complete the project. Like being able to sort of justify uh, and show value at every step of the way, I, I we found often changes the conversation around, uh, uh, around budgets. Um, but, you know, to kind of get back to your, you know, the black and white of your conversation, like there's no project too small or too big. I, like I get ex like if there's a small project that's cool, that has a great impact, like that's awesome. You know, I want to I want to work on that. But when when, you know, a, a client or a city has an opportunity that they're they're not going to throw the right resources at something or they're going to spend money in the wrong ways. Like that's when I'll say, I don't want to do something like that. Um, but, you know, I, I really try and, and, and I think all planners and designers should also be strategist. Um, I think far too often we sort of sit, we, we're, we're not engaged in the front end enough to actually start to make a difference. And so we become beholden to, you know, a published budget, or we become beholden to parameters that have been set by somebody who shouldn't have set those parameters. And so engaging in strategy, um, you know, at, at policy levels locally or, or with, you know, becoming trusted partners of clients so that you can help them establish that budget and what they need to spend money on. Um, that's, that's where I spend my energy um, so that I can, I can ultimately influence that. You've talked about several several challenges uh, just with perception and public policy and whatnot. I'm just curious on your initial, you said this Denargo market. I want to get back to that real quick, but it took five years to break ground basically, right? Half a decade, you said? That, I mean, more. that project's been going on even before I got involved. I mean, it's like, okay. you know, but city building takes time, so right. So what? So what were the biggest? What were the biggest challenges that you faced, at least um, while you were involved in the project, and and how did we? How did you overcome those at that scale? Yeah. Well, here's where I get in trouble. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I mean, honestly, the, 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 biggest, <laughs> yeah, the biggest, can you take this out now? I was just kidding. Um, no, no, I, I, I would say this to, to the, their, the people themselves. Uh, I have said this to the, those people. I mean, the, the biggest problem with that particular project is that 
you know, right now in the city of Denver um, and, you know, over the past couple of years, uh, it's certainly gotten worse is there, there's a huge disconnect between departments, um, you know, the different departments, uh, priorities of uh, the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure versus the priorities of planning versus the priorities of parks uh, versus the priorities of economic development. Um, and, and and then on top of that, there is a huge disconnect between uh, policy stances and planning guidance and implementation standards. Um, and so the entitlement process and approval process has become almost insurmountable. Uh, and that is, it's a huge issue. Uh, and it's it's not just Denver. I mean, I think in, in general, over the past 10 to 15 years, uh, entitlement processes in a lot of places have become uh, overwhelmingly complicated uh, and unnecessarily challenging and and have uh, honestly and this is what nobody in in these city plan these city agencies want to admit they have added to the unaffordable or unaffordability or the affordability issues that cities see I mean when you when you're sitting on a you know hundred thousand dollar plus a month uh, tax bill and you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in consultant fees uh and and that's your carrying cost per month of of just raw land and you get you know pushed out a year or two years in a process that's millions and millions of dollars that as a as a, a developer you have to you have to figure out what to do with because and what people don't understand is like developers are not necessarily like rich people that just like want to like screw the world over like those are just people that do jobs like most often like that money is coming from like a completely different place and so the people that they're screwing over are not necessarily like you know the 0.01 percent that they think they're screwing over um but but it, for for denarga i'll get back to that project i mean that that really was the biggest challenge is that there were all these things that were stated during the, the planning stage of the project, um, aspirations set forth. And then when push comes to shove in the, the implementation stage, there's just like a huge disconnect so that every single, you know, aspiration becomes a variance or every single aspiration becomes some sort of crazy negotiation that the city doesn't have the infrastructure to sort of work on with 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 you uh, and and ultimately the client and then the the sort of disconnect between agencies is so challenging when you know planning wants great streets uh you know great great or public you know public realm and pedestrian environments and then you start to lay out these cross sections and you know, the city engineers are saying, oh, we need, you know, a million feet clear for this storm pipe. You're like, this is impossible. Like, I, you know, we can't, we can't, we can't win everything. Um, and so that, that becomes really, really hard. Um, and, and I think, you know, for me, I feel like, uh, 
it all comes back to like the the lanes like staying in people's lanes and coloring you know coloring with inside the lines like so everybody is so laser focused on their one you know their one thing there's like that one person of the city who all that like all that person cares about is like the offset between you know the water and sanitary line like that's it that's all that person cares about and on every single project like just like copy and paste like maintain eight feet maintain eight feet maintain eight feet and it's just like this over and over and over conversation and if i i feel like if everybody would sort of zoom out and say like what's what's our collective mission here and how do we you know how do we sort of work together um that's when beautiful things happen and i think you know denargo like we had some we had some pretty impressive wins like that that project is going to have the most comprehensive stormwater management integrated stormwater management system that the city has period um you know on a district scale uh it's going to have you know some of the the best you know public realm that the city is going to have you know multiple sh blocks of shared streets and curbless cross sections that you know were giving people anxiety um you know th those sorts of things like we had some huge wins but that doesn't come with without you know, huge hurdles in um in that and uh, i mean honestly where we are right now in 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 the sort of market uh conditions like I feel like every every step of the way with inflation and 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 cost escalation, you're just like getting killed, killed on on all of these sorts of things. And so, you know, what starts out as this this amount of money, like starts to quickly dwindle away. And so you're always trying to play catch up. And um, but you know, being being creative and and strategic with where money spent is uh, you know, the way you handle that. You know, cities op operate on the sense of public trust, and they also are, you know, have financial responsibilities for um, the, the infrastructure that they put in place. What do you think is the best use of public funds from from the work that you've done? I don't, that is a tough question. <clears throat> And while you're while you're thinking about that, we we have this conversation, you know, back and forth about, you know, streets and public works does their work, planning does their work, zoning inspections, development center they do their work, economic development they're in a different office. The next question would: How could all of those groups work together to do what you've described? Is pull those pieces because the people don't care about the street width or. Um, you know, the size of the water pipe or where the valve is located, it comes back to kind of a, just a technical thing. But where the public gets interested is when they benefit from something. And so I guess like, how, how what would you propose if you could go to a, a perfect city and say, here's your budget, here's your design team, what would that look like? Yeah. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, I would say every city's needs are different um and so i don't i don't you know i don't have like a perfect project in mind that i i would sort of propose i guess the way that i would look at it is um and this kind of gets to your your sort of public trust and and public um sort of confidence in uh you know municipal spending is you know, just as 
private development is laser focused on the capital stack of how they build out, you know, the financing for a project. I think cities need to be more creative about how we build out the capital stack for projects. Um, you know, there was all there, there, there's all sorts of like innovation, like the, the notion of toll roads, like that was a huge innovation at the time of how to deliver public infrastructure in a, you know, in a more revenue sustainable way, not realizing that 35 years later, they would be stuck with a piece of infrastructure that they couldn't maintain and a revenue source that didn't exist anymore. However, that was that was an innovation in public financing um, that I think is something that we need to, to, to think about how we get back to. And, and so what I would say as an answer to that is, you know, municipal funding, like from, I don't know, a general fund or some sort of uh, 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 set, you know, tax millage, like that's only one piece of the, the pie and, and aligning, aligning projects and aligning, you know, where we spend money with public interest, uh, public energy presents a way, uh, presents an opportunity to broaden the reach of that project to where, you know, when you spend the money right, you, you could potentially uh, excite philanthropy and have them throw money at stuff. You could align it with, you know, larger societal uh, you know, collective decisions we've made around funding, you know, federal funding mechanisms and tie things to grant, you know, programs. And so when I, when I start to talk about implementation with clients, um, you know, particularly public clients, I always start by, by talking about the capital stack. Like how do you, how do you diversify the pie chart so that, municipal spending is the smallest wedge in there because yeah like at a local tax you know a local city level everybody's going to be laser focused on oh is this going to raise my property tax or my sales tax or whatever whatever their specific taxing mechanism might be in that municipality but if you can start to position a project to where it doesn't necessarily do that um but you're still getting that public good, then they build more trust. And then you can say, well, actually four years from now when the next tax cycle comes up, we're going to actually ask for, you know, something to do a second phase or, or whatever. And like, I think it all comes back to the, the strategy piece. Like we have to be strategists as well to understand how we, we actually help clients implement um, projects. And I know I, I got far away from your initial question, but, but I would push, I would I would really stress the need, you know, every city's unique. And so every, you know, the ideal project in each place is going to be different. But projects that leverage, um, you know, the right funding, I, I think is is so, so important. And that's where you see some of the most magical things happening. Like, you know, Sasaki worked on a project, uh, Smail Riverfront park and and sort of urban district in Cincinnati for decades and decades and decades. And that that project has the most interesting pie chart when you look at sort of the the financial breakdown 
Um, you know, it's just a, a wonderful, healthy mix of, you know, private investment, earned revenue from, you know, land sales and land leases in and around the, the park, uh, private, you know, tax, uh, uh, tax revenue, federal grants for flooding and infrastructure. And, and it just, it, what, what's amazing is, I mean, it's like hundreds of millions of dollars in, in riverfront park improvements uh, in Cincinnati. And it, it truly transformational of the, of the downtown and its relationship to the river there. Um, and it's been done in a way that's like, I, I think people could point to it and say like, wow, this is a really creative funding uh, mechanism. Um, you know, same thing, like our, our work at, in the Chicago Riverwalk, um, you know, used a, a, a TIFIA grant. Um, and so it's sort of like bonded against future revenues that have literally already paid back. I mean, a few years later, like like literally 15 years before it was supposed to be paid back, it already paid back because it generated that much value in, in adjacent real estate uh, 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 taxes and revenue uh, from some of the things. And so just being creative with those funding mechanisms, I think is, is so, so important. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. The uh, interesting thing is, are you going to run for mayor, first of all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I see a platform. Yeah. <laughs> Creative funding. Uh, <laughs> I would piss uh, way too many people off. <laughs> uh, just, just curious though, uh, kind of as we're we're wrapping up here, this is a question I like I like to ask all of the guests because it's something that when you come from a different background, you you typically have some sort of different answer to it, but it all has the same kind of loci point that. Um, the question I have is, what is what does the term placemaking mean for mm -hmm. you, and and how do you how do you or how do you not? <laughs> I mean, I would assume you would, but how do you try to weave that into your projects? Sure, I actually hate that term, and so <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's it's maybe I will be the one person that answers it differently. Um, you are off the podcast. No, I mean, <laughs> yeah. No, I I like I mean the the notion of placemaking to me is is the idea of creating authentic and loved environments. Um I think it has been co-opted unfortunately to mean d different things to different people that I think have actually had some somewhat of a detrimental, you know, impact on some conversations like for a while, placemaking was like all about tactical urbanism. And like, there were so many, you know, boxed trees and, and as, you know, painted asphalt that really, uh, you know, hurt, I think some of the energy that, that had been generated, um, you know, towards better environments. You know, I think some, sometimes placemaking means, you know, neoclassical architecture and, and, you know, brick, uh, uh, you know, brick paneling uh, instead of real brick. Like, you know, it sort of represents, uh, I, I think, a bit of kind of fakeness sometimes. Not, not that's not to mean that like the the where it came from is this idea of of just truly authentic and beloved places. Um, and so, 
to me, it just gets back to, uh, you know, creating human habitat. Like what, what is, what is, what is the desirable and most efficient and effective and healthy, uh, place for humans to, to live, work, play, learn, you know, make, um, and so I don't think it has, you know, a, a look. I don't think it has a particular style or or rationale. I, I and I, you know, at the end of the day, it it really comes down to just putting place first, um, which I, I do. I think is a novel idea because you know, for for far too long we've we haven't put place first. So, yeah. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Mark, you got a, a follow up? Yeah, well, I number one, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you uh, spending the spending the hour with us. If there's any advice that you would give someone who's interested in um, urbanism, urban design, you know, whether it's a city leader or, or just, you know, a neighborhood person who wants to get involved in the design conversation, how, how should they do that? Where books, references, where should people go to learn more about the things that you do professionally? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I would say, you know, outside of, of like learning, um, engaging, you know, you don't, you don't have to be a, a technical professional to engage in projects and policy um, you know, participating in community input sessions and, and community engagement exercises, you know, being vocal, writing article, like writing op-eds is like, that's like the, the coolest thing people can do. And, and just like lambasting terrible ideas uh, publicly, I think is, that's the way that conversations start. Um, and so, you know, I think if you have something to say, you should, you should say it. Um, you know, don't, don't stew, uh, in terms of literature, uh, you know, God, you could, you could start anywhere. I some of my personal favorites, I think Jan Gale, um, you know, is a, a phenomenal author, uh, you know, I like going back to like the goodies, but oldies, like death and life in American city by, by Jane Jacobs. And even like the counterpoint to that, the power broker about, about Robert Moses, like, if you read those two books back to back, good God, that's a great, you know, that's a yeah. great. It blows of, your mind. Um, it really does. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I mean, those are, those are great. You know, there's, there's so much literature out there about architecture and urbanism and landscape and whatnot. And I, you know, I feel like you could go down rabbit holes forever, but um, you know, I feel like if you get a good dose of Jan Gale and then uh, those two books, you'd be set, you're set for that's life. Awesome. Well, that's great. Well, thank you again for your time. Uh, we look forward to seeing other projects and learning more about your work over the years. Um, any any final thoughts? No, this is great. I, I honestly appreciate you guys doing this. I, I you know broadening the public discourse on on planning and design and the built environment is what we need to do. And uh, podcasts like this do that. So thank you. Yeah, awesome. appreciate. Thank it, you very Josh. much. I was going to say, uh, before we sign off here, Josh, yeah. I appreciate the hot takes. I was going to say, can you tell us where we can find out some more about uh, what you're working on yourself, Sasaki, 
just all the above just uh kind of give us an idea for the listeners where they can find out more um yeah i mean depending where you are in this world um uh, all over the place i mean we have we have projects on six continents and almost every single state uh and so you know feel free to engage uh you know me personally i've i've got active stuff in los angeles and denver and louisiana and little rock arkansas and minneapolis st paul area so where i am now um so as you see stuff come up if you're interested in engaging in conversations around your city like we we love we love people that are 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 uh you know are interested uh you know sasaki publishes a fair amount so uh follow us on our website or various social media channels and we we're all always posting about stuff we got going on um so yeah perfect all right thanks for your time josh all right thanks guys have a good day cheers